0: The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Peter came and said to Jesus, Lord, Jesus said to the disciples, if another member of the church sins against you, go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. If the member listens to you, you have regained that one. But if you are not listened to, take one or two others along with you so that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If the member refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if the offender refuses to listen even to the church, let such a one be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Truly, I tell you, Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you, if two of you agree on earth about anything you ask, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. The Gospel of the Lord Praise God.
1: May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Dr. George Valent is a psychoanalyst and a research psychiatrist who has studied and written about the evolution of spirituality. His definition of spirituality is basically this um, that spirituality, or the feeling of spirituality, is really just positive emotions like love, hope, joy, etc. And that we are all biologically inclined for these positive emotions through the process of evolution that the human capacity for positive emotions is what makes us spiritual. And he respects religion, but he's not that enthusiastic about organized religion as an impetus for the evolution of spirituality. As he writes, we do not learn how to love from religious education. We learn love from our genes, from our biochemistry, and from the people who love us and let us love them. Now, I am not going to go into the biochemistry or the millions of years that it took for evolution, for the evolution of love to occur in human beings according to some theories, but I do have a plug for religion. Fancy that. Religion, reminds us to love. It's true, love doesn't need religion, but religion certainly needs love. Religion is how we organize our spirituality, and love we know doesn't really need organization to exist, it exists, but religion does. The church does, it needs organization. Religion gives us liturgy, that is what we do on Sunday here in our worship service, and ways of expression, prayers and doctrine and music, things to believe and put our trust in, and the ways and things of belief help us organize our spirituality. The fact that we are all children of God means we are all spiritual beings. And as spiritual beings, we do need some organization. We need a pathway. We need guardrails sometimes. And as I say, religion or and or our churches need love. Now, I'm going to sidetrack for a bit on the topic of organization and religion because today is a special day. Today, we have our choir back. Yes, and you know, the choir and music uplifts our worship, worship experience so much. And why do we have music in worship? It's not to entertain at all. Sometimes it is entertaining. But why does music enhance worship? The Gospels that we hear on Sunday hard to understand. Scripture is complex. When we pray about the world and for people who are suffering, we sometimes have emotions that are complex. Silence can be complex because of what goes on in our heads. Our relationships with each other can be complex. The world is in disharmony as a rule that's what it appears to be when we look at the news everything is chaos there's chaos there's stuff happening in our lives and we bring it all to church music however even though music is complex don't ask me to play the piano (laughs) but music is organized it is precise music organizes the chaos Of complexity. Music puts it all together. Music, as another scientist writes, offers a means of harmonizing the anxious uncertain rhythms of human life with the more perfect rhythms of divine power and ultimate reality. Music helps us with our organization. We have music on in our cars when we are navigating, you know, the 134 and the 210. Teenagers wear earbuds all the time with music playing as they try to navigate the chaos of growing up. We crave some sort of order always to make sense of all the stimuli in the world. So that was just a little shout out to the benefits of music. But we're gonna go now back to love. Love doesn't need organization, but our spirituality does, and religion organizes this, and our church is here to remind us about what Jesus teaches. Jesus tells us to be organized in our ways of being by calling us to a new way of being. Paul, in essence, tells us the same thing. You'll notice that there's a little bit of difference here from that reading in Exodus that we heard, and even our psalm, even though it was beautifully chanted and sung, sounded a little vengeful. In Romans and in the gospel today, it kind of takes a different turn. It's, it's looking at a new way of being in the world, and Paul He's not so much interested in our emotions or our feelings in this letter to the Romans today when he talks about love. He is talking about the actions we take or we don't take. And then then he, he goes into the ten, that's why he goes into the Ten Commandments and he lists a few of them. You know, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't murder, you shouldn't do this. And then, basically, he sums it up, and and the laws of the Ten Commandments are kind of summed up with love your neighbor as yourself. And by neighbor, he means everyone, and not just those who live in your neighborhood, and those who look like you, or those who speak like you. So, Jesus said... That loving God and neighbor is the ultimate fulfillment. We've hear, heard that over and over again in other gospel readings. So that's what Paul is doing. He's taking these laws and he's, and he's boiling it down into love your neighbor. <laughs> that's what you need to do. So then we have the gospel today that tells us how to reconcile a bad relationship. And it says, if one member of the church hurts you, go and have a conversation between the two of you. And this process involves listening. The person who has wronged you is supposed to listen to you, not out of obligation, but to truly hear what you are saying. To truly hear someone is to have compassion for them and to sit with them in their suffering. That's what it means to truly listen to somebody. But if this doesn't happen, then you are to bring in a few other people who can maybe help as moderators or something like that, and if that doesn't work, then maybe you have to bring it to the wider, organized group. Now, when you read this, it's a little disconcerting because at, at first, it looks like we're supposed to get up here in this pulpit and publicly shame the offender in front of everybody. Uh, don't worry, I'm not gonna do that today. I'll take you aside if, if we've got a problem. <laughs> But that's not what this passage is all about. The passage is moving toward one of the most important elements of our faith. And one of the most important aspects of salvation history and of the future of the world and the ordering of the chaos for the harmonizing of the disharmony is reconciliation. It's not about making the other person believe everything you believe you're not going to sit down with someone and say okay we're not going to be reconciled until you believe everything I believe but reconciliation involves the the meeting between repentance and forgiveness putting things back to the right the listening of the wrong, the change of heart, and the forgiveness that is offered because of the change of heart. And we we make the attempt to renew the relationship that has been harmed, according to Desmond Tutu, which then becomes not a carbon copy of how that relationship was before, but a relationship that is something new. Desmond Tutu says this is a highly creative process, and I would add that it is really recreative. It's a recreative process. I watched a film the other night called The Railway Man. I saw the trailer by chance on Netflix, and it was about these two people who meet on a train, and they were traveling in Scotland. So I thought, ooh, how fun, since I had just gotten back from Scotland. A few days before, I thought, oh, how fun. This will be great to look at the scenery. It's a love story set in Scotland. But no. It was a true story, however. It was a true story about a man named Eric Lomax who fought for Britain in the Second World War, and he was captured in Singapore by the Japanese and sent to a POW camp. In this POW camp, he was tortured in a very bad way. We come to find out, as the story goes in and out between the 1980s and the 1940s, And in his present reality, which was in the 1980s, he is so haunted by what happened to him, he can't function properly and is at risk of harming himself and destroying his marriage and his relationship with his friends. And to make a long story short, he finds out that this person who had tortured him was still alive and working as a tour guide at the POW camp which was now a museum. So Eric goes back to Southeast Asia, to the camp in present day to confront his torturer, and he brings a knife, and he intends to kill him. He envisions torturing his former captor as he was tortured, seeking revenge. What happens is he hears the torturer's story And as Eric works out his anger and pain through conversations with his torturer, ultimately he finds that he can't kill him. So he throws his knife in the river and he goes back to Britain. Eventually, he gets a letter from his torturer that is full of remorse, full of guilt and pain. So Eric goes back to Southeast Asia and he meets his torturer again. And in a very emotional scene for the two men, they accept each other's apologies, they embrace, and the epilogue tells us that they remained close friends for 30 years until their deaths in 2011 and 2012. It's a real story. Real stories of reconciliation show us that it is possible, possible, that we don't have to always seek revenge that there is a new way forward for a new creation to evolve. And Jesus is telling us how to reconcile today. Jesus is telling us how to be a church. When two or three are gathered as Christians, we are a church. And the church is an interconnected body where all members are important. And and Paul often talks about the body of Christ, right, in other readings we hear throughout the year. The church being made up of many parts, and these parts are all interdependent on each other. And just as one example this week, when a parishioner found Herself in the hospital, another parishioner and another parishioner are there to offer love and care and assistance and do errands and, and do all of this stuff. And I've seen it just this week, but we see it over and over again in this congregation that that is the kind of love that Paul is talking about and the place where reconciliation should sit a place of unconditional love, knowing that there is pain and we are going to go sit there and be in this situation and work it out until there is a way forward. To make meaning out of the suffering, to not be oppressed by the suffering, as I preached about last week. Last week, Jesus spoke about how he had to go to Jerusalem and where he would, be, he would have to suffer and he would be killed, and today he is laying the groundwork for reconciliation. Reconciliation and next week we will hear more about forgiveness. That is who we are as a church, and that is why religion is important. And if the church can't be on the forefront of reconciliation, then who can? Churches are really centers for reconciliation, focused on the reconciliation of our relationships with our neighbors and with God. And we do this, yes, because our biochemistry allows us to love, but has evolved so because we have been loved. God loves us and created us for a purpose. If we believe that we are truly loved and created for a purpose, then yes, this world would be a better place. We wouldn't feel superior to others out of our own insecurities. We wouldn't blame others for our unhappiness. And justice, peace, and caring for others with gratitude and wonder would prevail. Now, ultimately, what all of this has in common is the real concept of humility. Now, be careful not to get confused with humiliation. When we are humiliated, we are forced to resign or to be put back in our place. There's a winner and there's a loser. But being humble is about being put in our place, but not out of shame or punishment. Being humble means that we take our rightful place. If at first we believe that God is an agent in our lives, and if we believe that we do indeed recognize that sin separates us, us from the vision of our lives that God has intended, and then once again it is about reconciling ourselves to being in right relationship with God. And it's not always on God to, to do this, I mean we have agency. God is there already, he's just waiting, or she is just waiting, but we have the freedom or not to accept God's invitation for wholeness. We have the freedom to love and make choices not to hurt others, as Paul reminds us. Humility means we recognize our place in creation as created beings and not the one who has the grand design. Being humble means we are open to imagination and creativity. Being humble means we don't depend on our ego and our craftiness, but rely on inspiration with gratitude and not a sense of entitlement. Humility is a tough doctrine to embrace, but unconditional love is reliant on it, not as something powerless, but as a superpower that will help us with the work of reconciliation, repentance, forgiveness, and change of heart. We hurt people, sometimes even the people that we love the most, friends, family members, neighbors, And we are hurt by our friends and our family members or our neighbors sometimes. We hurt others out of greed, fear, lust, anger, frustration, confusion, or a myriad of other emotions and feelings that aren't from God. These are deceiving emotions. They're negative. And if the psychoanalyst I quoted at the beginning is right, and we are hardwired for positive emotions like love, hope, joy, and the like, then we can be glad and rejoice in this. But it's not just biochemistry. God is in the mix. As Christians, it's not enough to ignore the negative We have to go through the journey of reconciliation with God in the midst and restore the feelings, the negativity, the brokenness, so that we are in right relationship in some sort of new creation. And there are steps to get there. Paul tells us to put on the armor of light so that we can act appropriately. So I imagine standing in front of a mirror in the morning and putting on that imaginary armor of light. What does that mean? Jesus tells us to reconcile and both require a trust in God who created the light and who gave us the capacity to love. So don't live with the weight of unreconciled relationships keeping you down. Once again, according to Desmond Tutu, The fourfold path to reaching forgiveness and reconciliation means we tell our stories truthfully, but we must accept that whatever has happened cannot be changed or undone. Name the hurt by accepting our own vulnerability in all humility. Recognize that forgiveness is a choice, and while the preference is always to renew that relationship, unless there is a question of safety, There is also validity in releasing that relationship as an option. Remember, Jesus said, if another member of the church sins against you, go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. If the member listens to you, you have regained that one. And the key word is listen. Don't just point your finger at each other, Listen with compassion and an open mind, not with a counter-argument in mind. And if you take one thing away from this sermon, which talked about a lot of things today, I admit it, take away the directive to listen. Listen in all humility to begin the process of putting things back in order and back in into harmony. Amen.